Hello, and welcome to my podcast. This time, sponsored by my history class. It's 20th Century History, and this is a uh, joint project uh, to report on some uh, themes that we see in the 20th century and its relation to my topic for today, morality and religion. So, in the final decades of the 19th century, thinkers in Europe started to notice that the role of God in the lives of the average person was diminishing. Separate from the fact that the Catholic Church was long past its days of controlling Europe, in 1882, Nietzsche identified that people were slipping away from the practice of life as according to Christian guidelines. Nietzsche believed that with religion fading away, the world theories created and enforced through religion, which bounded the populace minds, too would fade, leading to freedom, or at least independence in the creation of individual world theories. Nietzsche believed that humans did not need them. Ridding of world theories as a whole was his hope. In the modern day, some academics argue that there can never be absolute morality, like universal goods or evils, and given the fact that most of society has and continues to move away from being grounded in the same set of morals, that morality and civilizational cohesion will collapse. Instead, I want to argue that we are not on the precipice of the collapse of common morality, and offer a counterpoint to this thinking by presenting socially proven ways in which morality is created, shared, and maintained. First, as I often do, let me give some historical background. The Christian religion was really the only uniting political force and set of ideas which spanned Europe during the Dark Ages. Although kings held authority on the regional level, the cause and legitimacy for their rule was the divine right of kings. Their right to be on the throne was given and taken by the Catholic Church, who did so under the pretense of speaking with the will of God. Led by the Pope, the Catholic Church would make decisions and issue instructions to almost anyone in Europe and they would follow. The reason they would follow goes like this. Because the Church spoke for God, if you disobeyed the Church, you disobeyed God, and would go to hell. So, for fear of eternal damnation, all Christians would listen to the Church. This meant almost everyone in Europe followed a broad set of religious rules outlined by the Bible and modified and enforced by the Church. By the 16th century, the church had lost a lot of its influence. This is largely because of Johannes Gutenberg's invention of the printing press in the 1470s. Before books were printed, they had to be copied by hand, so the only way most people knew about the Bible was from religious leaders, monks, and other people affiliated with the church. After the printing press was invented, and more and more people read the Bible, they started having different ideas of how God worked and how they should live. The medieval era ended due to the printing press, letting people access more information freely. Due to governmental centralization and early colonialism, the middle class grew in the formerly feudal states of Europe in the 16th through 18th centuries. People who moved up in the world to the middle class thought about new ways of living that would improve their lives, like voting for leaders instead of letting the church say that God chose someone. During the late 17th to the mid-18th centuries, the Enlightenment era got its name from the explosion of ideas about human nature, governments, and human society. It was as if we had awoken from just believing what the Church and Bible said to believe, to trying to theorize, experiment, and discover, to prove things for ourselves. The Enlightenment shifted a person's idea of themselves 
from thinking about their place in God's kingdom to thinking about themselves individually, entitled to rights and driven by internally originating motivations. The idea of the individual comes from the Enlightenment. The scientific and industrial revolutions which followed this philosophical paradigm shift weakened the leverage the idea of God had on people and their society. Nietzsche was perhaps writing at the point in which the West was the most sure of its world theory. So why did the West become so confident? New empirically proven sciences were solidifying themselves in civilization, like evolutionary biology, astrophysics, psychology. These new sciences gave humanity so much promise and information, and all pretty much ran directly against the existence of a god, or at least that you should listen to one. There was an overwhelming faith in the human ability to easily discover and improve things. So, in the first half of the 19th century, we see things collapse a bit in on, on themselves. At the end of the 18th century, in the face of scientific progress, there were some who recognized problems from the new way that life emerged from this. Thinkers like Mark Twain, Karl Marx, Franz Kafka, and Friedrich Nietzsche, for instance, wrote about how the life of the common person was being diminished, that more and more in an industrialized and increasingly impersonal scientific society, people felt alienated and uncomfortable where they were and how they lived. Most people still believed in a god and tried to live by the teachings associated with that god, but ultimately had to face the reality of a godless world. So, could this last? At the end of the 19th century, a dual ideology reigned in many people's minds. They believed both that science had a supreme dominance over many studies, but that the kind of progress made had to be done within Christian guidelines. A lot of progress which was being made by what we would call quote-unquote scientific means then was being pursued with religious ends. An example would be the British Empire's belief that they needed to civilize other people. They went about doing so in a deliberate process which was broken into a kind of science. However, they were given the moral right to do so from God. As you can see, the world was still framed in part through religion. Some scientists thought that God wanted them to discover and know the world, and did so. The confidence Europeans had in their belief systems trumped most doubt about their validity. Not until 1915 did this start to change, and nearly completely abolished in 1945. In 1919, when all the European countries looked back in horror at the great war they had just fought, something snapped in the people and the nations. The countries of Europe, made up of very patriotic and hopeful people on the whole, thought the kind of dirty and savage wars of their past were behind them. When they fought the First World War, it devolved into this horrific nightmare which was the complete opposite of all the progress they thought they had been making. The way the war turned out was such a massive shock to the European people, having witnessed the war, there were two major things which they quote-unquote realized. One, that there is no God, for he would not have let hell happen on earth. And two, they could not expect to be the leaders and civilizers of the world if they were all the same to the people they had colonized during their golden ages. So in addition to the Great War undermining the entire belief system and self-confidence of the European people, the Holocaust became the final tug which pulled the carpet out from underneath the Europeans. 
after the First World War, people still possessed some Christian values, though not enough to constitute a full belief system. They did still have confidence in science, which started to reach dead ends or evolve into ideas with dubious reasoning and downright dangerous conclusions, one of which was eugenics and its accompanying philosophy of social Darwinism. Eugenics was the idea that the right to create more humans, reproduce, should only be held by people with desirable traits. What those desirable traits were was up to whoever wanted to execute the eugenics. And social Darwinism is the belief that because of things like medicine and culture, people with bad traits in society stay around long enough to keep making more people with those traits. In order for the survival of the fittest to carry on, the humans with the correct traits have to end the lineages of those who are not fit. A lot of people believed in these ideas, or something like this. Eugenicists were considered real scientists, and without m good moral grounding, it was looking like it was okay for eugenics to become practice. The regime which took the practice of eugenics and adopted moral codes to accommodate social Darwinism and bring them all to their natural conclusion was Nazi Germany. When what the Germans did was discovered, the Europeans' conception of the world was again shaken. Since many Europeans were very publicly anti-Semitic and moving towards social Darwinism before the war, seeing the path they could have been on where it led was shocking. Not only did the Holocaust truly show that God could not exist, but it demonstrated to many that the source of their morality and decision-making was exploitable. Such a sharp change in beliefs from outward racism to relative tolerance in a couple decades showed that morality was relative, at least a lot more relative compared to the past two centuries of Western morality. It is often inadequate to cut the movement of history into discrete parts. But for the purpose of summary of my historical contexts, the moral shift was caused by and happened in this context, just to recap. One, the church lost power over people when access to education let more people have their own ideas about religion and the world, because religion is merely a perceptual lens and framework for seeing and interpreting the world. Two, as technology advanced, it was fed and fed into the decentralization of moral and religious law. Three, the modern philosophy and science that emerged post-enlightenment allowed the moral belief system to exist without a God figure who mandated morality. Four, although God was no longer needed or could no longer be proven, the preaching still affected the practice. Scientific discovery and practice had to fit into a spiritually influenced worldview. 5. The assertive and experimental culture, and this is where my commentary comes in, mixed with dangerous ideas and practices of authoritarianism and racial quote-unquote science, spawned many colonial practices, the First World War, and the Holocaust. 6. Badly burned from the failures of the moral and political system of the late 19th and early 20th centuries, Many blame the lack of a god or higher power to mandate moral law on the apparent moral relativism of the past century. So this all leaves us with a question. Where are people deriving their morality from now? It seems like the moral underpinnings of Europe are economic fairness and cooperation. 
the belief one should not meddle in others' affairs, and the obedience to law. But where do these general beliefs, although probably, but not universally, agreeable, come from? Well, not from anywhere, really. What I mean by this is there is no central origin or controller of this morality. There hasn't been a powerful church for a long time, and the following of religious principles for the sake of following them is certainly waning. Most people in the West just follow what seems right. And that can be religion sometimes. It can also be what the government says. It can be what political group you follow says. It can even be from your own direction. The part which can lead to some speculated problems is that to exist in society, not everyone needs to follow the same set of moral rules. And this is what the events of the 20th century changed us into. There is a good argument that if people all believe different things about how they should act, then the gap between belief systems will cause disharmony and the collapse of the world as a place with unified peoples, governments, and international cooperation. I'll get to why this is untrue soon. So, some people who like religion or predict the end is nigh say that without the fear of God, morals don't exist. More moderate people are still convinced that without a central and mandated, potentially forced, set of guiding principles, things will, will just fall apart. I disagree. I think that there cannot be an ultimate and absolute set of morals, but there are ways to find and disseminate a common set which has some qualities of absoluteness. First, let's take a look at the basic idea of where religion comes from. Stories. Stories are the main way that some kind of shared belief system, like a religion, is created and sustained in indigenous type societies, with larger societies like China and the West also utilizing stories alongside other mediums. Stories with lessons told to kids aren't really told as explicit lessons. Rather, a set of stories in a culture build up a set of moral principles. So quickly, let's talk a bit about indigenous societies. Although we consider indigenous societies to be lacking the hierarchical governance which occurs in large societies, indigenous societies around the globe have and continue to develop a standardized set of morals, just like we expect large hierarchical ones to do. These morals are not enforced or brought about through indoctrination or on some entity's authority, like hierarchical or coercion-based societies. Instead of that, individuals come about the standard moral principles through hearing stories in their adolescent stage, internalizing the lessons of that story, then behaving according to the set of morals which the stories taught them. If they act in a way that the story values, they are often rewarded. If not, then at the very least they're corrected by being given negative feedback by their society. Over time, the set of stories which are invented and then kept and shared in the society are going to produce the optimal outcome for the society. You can even see that almost all societies, big and small, can produce a similar moral framework, regardless of morality originating from authority. The fact that we have a tendency to do this, that stories create moral beliefs, could also hint at some biologically ingrained morals or interpersonal behavioral tendencies, at least. Because people who hear these stories aren't forced to adopt the lessons, but do anyways, means that human societies have an underlying and natural connection to the moral underpinnings of these stories. And because most of the stories told across different cultures have a similar set of morals, could it be safe to say that there is some universal morality in humans? And these are all big ifs. 
if I were to attempt to spell out what exactly these moral tenets are, they would be imprecise. But for the purpose of demonstration or illustrating the point, I'll try. The first one I'd say would be the golden rule. Do unto others as you wish others do unto you. This means treating people how you want them to treat you. From Christianity to Buddhism to Native American beliefs, regardless of societal structure really, the ones which have been around a long time all teach some minor variation of this rule. The second one is probably working with others is better than working against them. If you can coordinate your efforts to benefit others and yourself, it will ultimately benefit yourself and the group you're a part of, naturally. Contrary to popular belief, supposedly capitalism is intended to promote working with each other. If no one engaged in the market, it would collapse. The purpose of the market is to motivate cooperation. Competition is mainly a way to make people cooperate in a more resource-efficient way. Humans evolved to be social creatures. Without other humans around, the capabilities of any one human are severely hampered to the point of being intellectually maimed. You could not create a car by yourself in a whole lifetime. There are certainly many objections which can be made to these rules. I probably left some out or put ones in there that have many exceptions. But I hope that they are general enough to sound pragmatic to most societal value systems and illustrate this point of potential universality. The point is, if we do indeed develop these tenets in every lasting culture, then do we really develop them if they're so automatic? Then can they be ingrained into humanity? Well, there are two ways they could be. One is that they are evolutionarily baked into the social parts of the human brain. This would mean that there are literally instructions in the brain telling us to behave a certain way. Or two, they can be created through something called niche construction. This is a way of creating and distributing practices that changes the way we live long term. It can add to, and in small parts, replace biological adaptation. While biology and niches change over time, niches can be changed faster and with more stability once change is made. I'll explain what they are in a second. So I've learned about niches and niche construction from a cognitive science book that I'm reading for school called Thought in a Hostile World by Kim Sterelny. So basing my argument on one, morality is innate in our biology, is pretty shaky, so I'll continue my argument for objective morality along the lines of two. That objective, or near-objective, morality arises through the creation of shared and replicable belief systems over time in a niche construction sort of way. Niche construction is something which many animals already do. In the face of environmental pressures, an animal changes the environment around them to better suit them. Humanity does this by building shelters or houses. Spiders do this by making webs. When a niche is maintained and built upon generation after generation, not only does it make life easier for the original builders, but even easier for those who reap the rewards of its existence and maintain it later on. There are two realms of niches as well, physical and epistemic. Physical means creating a niche related to food gathering, resource collection, survival, etc. The other is epistemic, which means creating a niche which relates to gathering, storing, and distributing information. So how can we modify the information we get from the environment? What does that mean? Think of creating a language. 
You can be told something and then know it with language. Without linguistic representation of thought, you would have to actually physically experience everything yourself to know it. Epistemic niche construction means that big databases of knowledge can be built up by generations and spread between individuals quickly and efficiently. I'll also introduce two kinds of niche construction which either physical or epistemic can fall into. Niche construction can be cumulative or non-cumulative. Storelny gives the example of rabbit warrens. A rabbit's family warren, their home, can be made larger over generations by each rabbit digging new tunnels. The only benefit a rabbit gets from having a larger house are the direct benefits, like having more room to store food, more places to hide. With more tunnels, they don't develop new ways of making tunnels or living. There is no change in the paradigm of rabbit life when they get more tunnels. With humans, much of our progress intellectually comes from accumulation. When humans build something like a university, it becomes gestalt. Not only is it a place where many different places of study on different subjects are located, but the new capacity for interdepartmental research is added, which doesn't really exist without universities or research campuses. Sir Isaac Newton nods towards the accumulation of knowledge through epistemic niche construction when he said, quote, If I have seen further than others, it is by standing upon the shoulders of giants meaning that his insights came from being supported by all the work other thinkers did, which he had learned previously. So, the system of belief being embedded into our environment through epistemic niche construction means that individuals growing up and forming their morals create them with support or scaffolding. Over many generations of human interaction and moral discourse were the modern moral guidelines created. To have cumulative downstream niche construction, the culture which seeks to disseminate the information creates mechanisms of scaffold. Stories taught to young children which enforce morals train the children's minds to think and value certain things. Then, when the children behave like they hear in the story, they are also rewarded when they do so. This is scaffolding. Moral features which led to the manifestation of a net negative feature of society have been purged many times. A strong example would be the purging of Mao's communist philosophy in China, due to the fact that the material and ideal ramifications of his ideas spelt doom wherever they were implemented. The tendency to learn from mistakes and cull bad practice suggests that humans, on the individual level through cultural scaffolding, and on the societal level through trial and error and niche construction, are able to follow a broad, but not functionally subjective, moral direction. What I mean by not functionally subjective is that there is going to be a clear, single track for cooperation, even though, by definition, there isn't necessarily one, but it just happens to be that there will be one that emerges. So given the intellectual acceleration in the past century, and the apparent robustness of the scientific system, it actually may look like we are set up for a familiar catastrophe of the First World War. Looking at Europe in the early 20th century again, it can be argued that since the gap in moral alignment which Christianity left was not filled, 
there was a streak of extremism, conflict, and atrocity. Are we too lacking the force which creates a grounded moral scaffolding and system, as some modern Christians or pro-religious people advocate? My response is that is not the case. The internet, for example, holds much promise to cultivate shared morality on a faster time scale and in a more formal way at that. The internet is the greatest invention humanity has ever created to share information. An argument comparing it to something like the printing press can be made, that mass access to information leads to a diaspora of opinions. Well, I agree that we see this problem to an extent today. The decentralization of the internet may even exacerbate the problem of differing opinions. Our current system at its core uses niche construction and cultural scaffolding. And I would argue that a non-mandated set of morality can work for the large societies that we have, as it already does in indigenous societies, which use the same mechanisms. On a large scale, this is where the aspect of casual and formal interaction with morals comes into play. A casual interaction with moral scaffolding leads to implicit acceptance of ideas. Good or bad, on a large scale, implicit understandings allow for more interpretation, thus variation of moral opinions. In a formal interaction with moral scaffolding, the learner has a deliberate understanding of their informational sources, the cause and effect of their morality, and an ethical mindfulness, all of which lead to critical thinking and metacognition on their beliefs. If nearly everyone has an awareness of their morals, the overconfidence problem, I believe, can be avoided. Additionally, paired with the strong and quickly adapting cultural scaffolding the internet promises to allow, decentralized conception of morality can be sustained. Thank you for listening. I might um, do a follow-up of this episode just because I really enjoyed some of the things that I talked about and there are certainly many points which I can expand upon in much more time and depth than, than I had today. So with that said, thank you and goodbye.